Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the skinny budget podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. I'm recording this episode on April 24th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host who now wishes he double-tapped that zombie healthcare bill. <laughs> Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So Frank, uh, quickly, uh, I need to uh, send uh, many thanks to uh, Hank Greeley, Glenn Cohen, and Andrew Torrance for organizing BioLaw Lapalooza at uh, Stanford Law last week. Lots of very clever people saying very smart things. Really enjoyed it. And uh, a really big shout out to the many Twill listeners who were in attendance. So I guess, Frank, while I was working hard in Northern California, you were probably just lying on the sofa catching up on your soaps. <laughs> No, I was I was actually at the UN's Urban Law Day, so that was oh my, my reason to be away from uh, Stanford. And I was talking a bit about accountable care organizations there with some folks from Bloomberg Associates. So it was a very fun gathering, but not as fun, I think, as the Stanford Lala, Bio Lala Palooza. <laughs> well, I think they're going to do it again. So uh, uh, next time. Great. This week on Twill, we greet Elizabeth Tobin Tyler, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at the Alpert Medical School and of Health Services Policy and Practice at the Brown University School of Public Health. She teaches in the areas of health policy, health equity, and public health law and ethics. Her research focuses on the role of law and policy in the social determinants of health, community-based, and health system interventions that address health disparities and interprofessional medico-legal education. A great speaker, as well as all of that stuff. And so it's a real treat to have you on the pod, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. So to start today's uh, round of questions and conversation, Liz, um, I just wanted to give the listeners a sense of the shape of the show, where I think we wanted to start with talking about medical legal partnerships, then talking more about educating interdisciplinary healthcare teams, and then finally on some value-based care models. And so to begin the conversation, I think it'd be good to start in a place where I think a lot of our legal listeners are familiar, which is medical legal partnerships. And I was wondering if you could explain for everyone, you know, what the premise of these are and what the value add is of having lawyers in partnership with uh, physicians and other healthcare providers. This is, this is a really interesting movement. I, I would actually trace it back to Jack Geiger in the 1960s, the founder of the health center movement, um, who recognized really early on that hiring a lawyer to be part of the healthcare team addressing basic needs of very low-income and vulnerable patients was um, really important to addressing health. Uh, and really over time, um, there has been a movement towards recognizing that along with other professionals, including certainly doctors, nurses, um, I would say social workers, um, community health workers, that having a lawyer as part of that team is really critical to addressing the social determinants of health that we all know is a, a critical part of um, both individual and population health. Uh, so the movement really started at Boston Medical Center back in the early 90s, where uh, a lawyer was embedded in the pediatrics unit to address issues really, really around poverty. So substandard housing, access to public benefits, pediatric realm issues around 
around access to services in schools, family violence. So really a recognition early on that that poverty plays a great role in in, in health generally, but particularly in, in child health. And the movements really, really sort of grew through the 1990s. But I think, as we all know, you know, in the sort of healthcare world today, there is much more of an understanding and sense uh, that to reduce healthcare costs, to improve population health outcomes, um, of which the United States uh, is struggling, and particularly when it comes to health disparities, that we really do have to figure out how we, we reach beyond the exam room and how we uh, think about what's happening outside in the community. But many of those issues have a, a legal um, basis. When we think about structural issues that affect health, we think about lack of enforcement of a housing code. We think about access to entitlements for whether it's insurance or uh, food subsidies. When we think about you know violence that's impacting a child, there's been a lot of research recently on discussion of, of you know adverse childhood ex- uh, uh, experiences. It's actually not new research, but it's been research that has been talked about a lot recently. We reckon you know we recognize that many of these issues have structural components. Um, where lawyers can really play an important role, both in terms of individual health uh, and and access to legal services, but also in addressing some of those structural problems. Um, so, you know, as we've looked at the movement growing over time, we've gone from, you know, a few partnerships at different healthcare settings where a lawyer was embedded to work alongside other staff um, to now about 295 partnerships in about 41 states uh, that are in a whole range of different places, including children's hospitals, um, certainly in uh, federally qualified health centers. Um, and then we're also seeing specific populations being addressed through this kind of model. Uh, so whether it's the homeless, it's veterans, refugees, disabled people, um, or even focus on particular diseases like like uh, mental health issues or cancer or HIV. So uh, there's really been a recognition that, that lawyers and, and law play a critical role in this. And in terms of the mechanics of the medical legal partnership, I'm wondering, you know, I've been thinking a lot over the past couple of years about professional response responsibility and formal structures for, say, the creation of a lawyer-client relationship. Could you give the listeners a sense of how, say, an attorney-client relationship is formed in a medical-legal partnership, or if the MLPs emphasize more informality to avoid, say, potential malpractice concerns or other types of concerns that attorneys might have before they want to enter into um, problems which might be quite complex? It's a great question, Frank. I think as the movement has grown, we've really had to struggle with and think about this when you when you bring a lawyer into uh, an unusual setting I would say you know we certainly have lawyers in hospitals as general counsel but when we're talking about medical legal partnership we're talking about a lawyer who is really there serving patients directly um, so you know just in terms of thinking about issues around conflict of interest for example um, generally the way that medical legal partnerships work is that there is a formal um, memorandum of understanding between the healthcare uh, hospital or clinic, uh, and often the legal partner, which can be a legal aid organization or another public interest law entity, uh, recognizing obviously that the lawyer is there on behalf of the patient and will not, um, you know, serve another purpose within the clinic, but also will not uh, um, bring any kind of lawsuit against the the healthcare institution with which they're partnering. Um, but I think, you know, when we think about uh, sort of who's the client um, in this in this arrangement, that that has been a question that's evolved over time as well. So. 
For example, you know, if you think about a legal aid organization contracting with a health clinic to embed a lawyer uh, full-time at the hospital, um, essentially doing intake with, with patients through collaboration with, uh, with the medical partner, um, then it's quite clear that if they take on that patient and represent that patient in some sort of uh, legal case or even providing advice that the, that the client is, is the patient. But as this movement has evolved, there are models now as well that um, have the lawyer really serving more as a team member uh, to the healthcare staff. And so rather than doing direct representation for patients, taking on um, either litigation or, or advising patients directly, the lawyer is really working with the team to provide a more um, consultive role or educational role with the team. Um, in that case, you know, you're looking at the, the client potentially being the healthcare clinic in terms of serving its staff. So I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting and evolving question. Um, and certainly one that a lot of ethicists have been, uh, thinking about in terms of this interdisciplinary model, whether it's in medical legal partnership or it's in other kinds of interdisciplinary models with social work, for example, that bring lawyers and other professionals together. That's very interesting because there are other professionals who intersect here. I'm thinking of chaplains, officers, ethicists, and, uh, within the healthcare system and so on. How do you manage potential conflicts of interest in MLPs? The way that we've dealt with that is really by trying to structure the relationships very carefully from the very beginning. And again, you know, we have worked with programs that are starting up to have a very explicit memorandum of, of understanding about the types of cases or the type of work that the medical legal partnership attorney will take on and won't take on. You know, you can imagine if the idea is to partner or collaborate with the medical team, they want to be clear that that the lawyer is not going to be in a position of advising the patient, you know, whether if there's an adverse uh, action on behalf of the hospital that needs to occur or on behalf of the clinic. So it's really it's really about planning and spending a lot of time up front helping medical partners and, you know, to understand what the role of the lawyer is um, in advance of starting the partnership. And as you can imagine, it's there's a lot of education and a lot of time that needs to be spent. I think the worst thing that can happen is having a partnership start up where people haven't contemplated those issues um, sufficiently before they start the partnership. And that's when they really run into problems. So last uh, year with uh, Mary Crossley and Jennifer Herbst, uh, you published a piece about uh, community health highlighting unmet legal needs as in that bundle of social determinants of health. And you concentrated in that piece on the regulations made under the ACA that sort of took a broad upstream view of social determinants and community consultation. I'd like to hear more about that, but also uh, in the context of where we are today. You know, fast forward and we have new leadership and policies at education, uh, HUD. I think I recall an earlier health affairs piece of yours on housing law enforcement. New leadership at, at EPA, while Attorney General Sessions seems to be interested in returning us to the war on drugs and reversing some of the settlements justice entered into with law enforcement. Combine that with the skinny budget, possible cuts of legal services, SNAP, TANF, and so on. And Liz, I don't want you to run screaming from the podcast looking for some antidepressants, but I, I wonder how we even begin to assess the potential negative impact uh, on social determinants because of the new administration. Yeah, I'll try not to run screaming. Um, you know, I think just to, to touch 
touch on the piece that you're talking about in terms of community health needs assessments and and uh, the connections that we were trying to draw um, between that process and uh, legal needs. So um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, under the Affordable Care Act, not-for-profit hospitals are, are required um, in order to, to receive their tax exemption to do uh, a community health needs assessment every three years. And, you know, this was really intended to help hospitals to think about their role, you know, in the larger public health scheme as opposed to um, thinking about their community benefit as, as simply being about charity care for people that don't have insurance or making up, you know, for the cost that they may not um, be reimbursed for Medicaid or CHIP. So, you know, the the regulations, the new regulations were actually really clear that this was not just about financial issues, but it was really about having this broader perspective. Um, I think the, you know, the regulations talk about things like nutrition, social and behavioral and environmental factors that influence health, and really trying to encourage hospitals to bring together people in the community, including their public health partners, uh, to think about how they could have a community benefit, you know, how they could address some of those issues as part of um, the care that they're giving. And, you know, frankly, to to think about um, how they could prevent hospitalization um, of, of patients in their community. And as we, as we know, those incentives, you know, we're trying to, I think, have been for many years trying to shift the incentives away from hospitalizing people and towards prevention. Um, I'll just mention that Sarah Rosenbaum uh, and some of her colleagues did a study uh, just a few years ago looking at um, how much hospitals allocate towards community benefit spending. And they found that less than 8% of the community benefit spending was going to any kind of community health improvement activities. And it really was primarily still focused on, uh, you know, offsetting costs for indigent care. So this is a, this has been a kind of uphill battle, um, as it is. But I think the, you know, the goal of, of including this in, in the ACA and in the regulations was really to try to shift, like we're trying to do in many areas, try to shift towards preventive care, um, and reducing costs and, and a recognition that social determinants play a critical role in that. Uh, with regard to where we are now, um, you know, I think the momentum uh, towards really thinking about addressing social determinants, whether it's through this community health needs assessment process in hospitals, whether it's accountable care organizations trying to integrate um, services that are addressing patients' needs around social needs, uh, whether it's a building out of patient-centered medical homes and other kinds of uh, models that are really looking at social determinants in this greater framework of what we want to call healthcare at this point. I think, you know, much of much of that momentum and much of that work that we've seen over the last few years with the Affordable Care Act's uh, support is in jeopardy. Um, and on the one hand, you know, we <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen in the next few months or a few years with regard to the Affordable Care Act. Um, but we do know that administrative agencies like HHS, uh, you know, have shifted very much in terms of their leadership. Um, I think the question will be uh, whether whether that leadership um, maintains some of this momentum or process around value-based care models um, with the idea with the with the idea that you know we we do still need to con- be concerned about costs um, and you know to the extent we can still see the social determinants of health as playing a role in our you know heightened uh, healthcare costs and the, and the need to address those. I don't know. I don't know if 
if, if, if that's where we will continue to head or not. I'm certainly hopeful that, that we do, you know, but it's there's very much that w- that's very uncertain at this point, as you both know. Yes, I think this uncertainty is really a cloud over the health policy landscape right now. It certainly has been a theme of the last few Twill podcasts. Um, and I hate to add yet another layer of um, problems to, the, <laughs> to what I think is quite a commendable initiative, but I'm wondering um, about the funding streams for medical legal partnerships. Is the main vision here that as part of value-based care models, money saved via, say, gain sharing or other efficiencies in the delivery supply chain in healthcare might be reallocated to address these more upstream issues? Or are there other uh, dedicated funding streams for the attorneys in uh, medical legal partnerships? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, I think this is what's been interesting about watching the medical legal partnership movement um, since the early 90s. You know, I think funding initially was based on this partnership model of a legal aid organization and a a hospital-based clinic or a community health center, and basically based on passion, right? Passion of, you know, what we call the medical champion, someone in the clinic who saw this as very valuable for patients and, you know, an innovative legal aid partner that was coming to the table and trying to, to figure out how to fund something that would, that would you know, provide this service for patients. And so the funding, ha- you know, traditionally is primarily come from the legal aid office, you know, supporting this work, some philanthropy that was brought to the table maybe a little bit of funding from the healthcare institution, but often not very much. And what's shifted in the last few years, and and I really do think this is because of the focus on value-based care models, is that there is more of an understanding, and certainly I've been in this work a long time, it's a lot easier to talk to healthcare partners now about the potential value of of medical legal partnership for achieving sort of the the triple aim goals, right? Of, you know, can we improve quality and access? Can we reduce costs? Can we potentially improve outcomes um, and really kind of do a better job of connecting population health goals with what's happening in the clinic. And so uh, there was a recent site survey of the medical legal partnerships across the country, and more than half of them reported that they now receive funding through the the health partner. Um, So I think there has been certainly more recognition that this is something that is important as part of healthcare. Uh, Would I say that we're where we would like to be in terms of it really being institutionalized as part of healthcare? No, we certainly are not. Not there, um, but I think as things like the patient-centered medical home um, and and more and more ACOs, uh, kind of understanding that the social determinants of health is a, is an important aspect of the integrated care model. I think there's there's definitely been more um, consideration of funding MLP services upfront with the idea that they can help um, meet some of those goals. So you know it's a it's a relatively new part of the movement because many of the partnerships started you know really. Uh, uh, um, kind of organically. And I think there's been much more thought, particularly by the National Center for Medical Legal Partnership, about how to, you know, how to think about this as part of the goals of ACOs and PCMH and, um, you know, some of the new resources that are coming to federally qualified health centers to, to address broader social needs. Yes, I think that that's a really important consideration. And I do see exactly how those trends work together. It actually reminds me of a past uh, twill we had with Jessica Mantle um, talking about how some of the new nonprofit regulations uh, from IRS might lead to some incentives for nonprofit hospitals to explore ways of supporting these types of uh, integrated community health management was uh, how she, uh, Dean
convened some similar programs. Of course, on the dark side, one of worries exactly how the uh, IRS under Mnuchin or under whoever is going to be the commissioner of the IRS um, will be uh, handling these sorts of things. And of course, the Legal Services Corporation looks like it's on the chopping block as well under the skinny budget. And I was wondering if we could focus um, on some of your work on educational settings, because uh, in terms of your uh, recent work uh, in academic medicine on training the 21st century healthcare team, maximizing interprofessional education through medical legal partnerships, it seems as though there's a clear value add for both legal educators and medical educators uh, in terms of promoting the education of their students by exposing, say, the would-be lawyers to future doctors uh, and vice versa. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this has actually been a, a, a passion of mine for many years. Previous to being at Brown, I was at Roger Williams Law School uh, and started one of the, the first courses, I believe, in the country that brought together law and medical students, specifically focused on understanding law as a social determinant of health um, and thinking about uh, structural issues that impact health and how, at that point, lawyers and doctors might partner together to address those issues. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, this was more than 15 years ago. Uh, you know, sometimes it, it, it took some time to convince the law and medical students that they could actually be friends and <laughs> could be allies and rather than adversaries in, in uh, their understanding of professional roles. Um, but we've obviously come come very far in terms of uh, both, I think, interprofessional education, but but also um, thinking about the value, as I've talked about before, of of bringing the question of law and and legal service to the table when we think about health. Uh, so um, you know, I've seen the growth over time of uh, educational initiatives to bring together not just law and medical students, but nursing and social work students, public health students, um, because of the the real understanding standing, I think, in the disciplines around the social determinants of health. Um, and I think the value, well, I can talk about the value to the health professionals, but I think the value to the law students is that it really gives them a different framework for thinking about how we use and understand law as a tool. Uh, and I would, you know, I would go so far as to say that it offers an opportunity for students to think about preventive law, um, which is we're not necessarily talking about training you to litigate. We're, tra we're helping you to think about what are the questions that you might ask in this health context um, about people's daily lives and what they're struggling with um, so that you can be uh, an expert or a, or a support um, to other partners in addressing some of the structural barriers that people face, particularly those living in poverty, um, that ultimately, if we can successfully address, uh, are going to prevent poor health outcomes or, or, you know, ideally prevent poor health outcomes um, or stabilize families or, you know, provide um, an opportunity uh, for people to you know, not move into a crisis mode, which is often in the law what we focus on. We focus on litigation after the crisis has occurred. Um, from the health professional student uh, side, um, you know, we're, there's a lot of work being done now and a lot of emphasis in medical education, but certainly in nursing and other health professional education around helping uh providers to screen for or to ask questions about social determinants of health. And I think what's the real challenge there is that we often say this is important. Um, you should think about this. It's part of your patient's health. But we don't always move to the next step, which is what can you do about it? And what what is it? What is within your professional role to be able to do? Uh, and as opposed to who do you need to partner with to be able to effectively address that problem? Um, so here at Brown, um, 
with medical students, I'm, I'm teaching them to think about social determinants of health, certainly, but also how to think about this, the larger structural and legal issues that their patients might be confronting, but also really to think about who are your partners in the community, whether it's legal aid or a public interest law office or, you know, community-based organizations that might be appropriate for addressing those issues. But we're also doing a lot of training with residents and in particular here at Brown, the family medicine residents to help them really because they're seeing these issues on a daily basis in their clinic to, to really help them think about what kinds of questions should I be asking, but also what, what are the resources that I, that I have at my disposal. And some of that is kind of simple things. It's not necessarily that you're going to have a lawyer at your side who can take on a legal case for you. It might just be a, a lawyer who, you know, has helped uh, put together materials that are helpful to you as you think about writing a utility letter uh, to, to prevent your patient's utilities from being shut off or how to address that, you know, how to work through that SSI application in an effective way or how to ask for a reasonable accommodation for a patient. And some, so a lot of that is really about educating practitioners to, to be able to do their job better as opposed to asking them to take on an enormous task, you know, beyond what they're already doing. So that's, I think that's where we're, we're really working is trying to help people work at the top of their license, not asking them to take on extra responsibilities, but sort of pooling resources, pooling um, expertise and thinking about, you know, how do we train people to do to do this work together in an effective way? I'd like to push you a little bit both upstream and downstream, uh, Liz, on the education piece. I guess upstream, given that it's a partnership model, to what extent do you think we should be educating the the lawyers and the the residents at the same time? Should 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 we actually be having a unified partnership approach to just teaching about this? Secondly, moving you downstream sort of post-graduation for both sets of students. Where's the sustainability of the model after that? Are, for example, law firms pitching up with pro bono programs to to staff partnerships beyond sort of uh, the use of student skill and uh, the educational mission? Both really good questions. I think, you know, to answer your, your upstream um, uh, question of, you know, sort of bringing the students together earlier, I mean, I think that's, that's certainly been our goal and what we try to do in terms of bringing them together early is that, you know, a lot of this we can talk about in a classroom, but really it is the experience of the law student, you know, being in a a community, you know, a federally qualified community health center, seeing the needs of patients and seeing the structural barriers that they're facing alongside the resident or alongside the medical student or, you know, the social worker or the community health worker, that's really going to impact the way that they think about this uh, in terms of their own work going forward. Um, and so, you know, I think there are good models around the country where there's there's uh, really exceptional work being done in terms of integrating the learning both in the classroom and, and um, sort of as an experiential portion of this. The downstream question, I think, is a great one as well, because, and we certainly find this in medical education, uh, you know, we are trying to train the doctors of the 21st century to really think differently about how they practice medicine, right? This is, this is not um, the way that many doctors were trained. Certainly the mentors that they are working with when they go out into the community, you know, don't don't ask questions about housing or don't necessarily see the value of having, you know, partnerships with other professionals in the clinic. Um, you know, there's certainly a, a long history of the kind of autonomous physician who, you know, is the expert in the room and really trying to help uh, help students think differently about how they're going to practice medicine when they're going out into a community of mentors who don't practice that way is a real challenge. Challenge. 
I guess the 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 part that you know the opti- optimist in me is that I, I I do see sort of the new leadership emerging among young practitioners um, who are you know we've had we've had students uh, who have gone through this educational program and who have gone to clinics for their or to hospitals for their residency program or you know in their New Year's as, New Year's as attendings and have asked for resources because they've seen the value of having this model uh, to to you know to initiate a medical legal partnership or something like it that that is helping to address social needs. So I, I think it's a long-term um, process of change, but I do think that the educational piece plays a key role in that. In terms of having the, the resources for medical legal partnership in particular, um, you know, for example, having the lawyers in the community, whether it's through pro bono legal services or or other um, nonprofit legal services, it's a real challenge. Um, you know, we all know that the, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Legal Services Corporation has, you know, we don't know what the funding is going to look like for that. Um, it's been it's been suffering cuts over the years, and having the resources available, you know, we can we can tell students all we want that it's great for you to have a lawyer at your side or or supporting your work. But if the resources aren't in the community, that's really challenging. So I think you know a lot of my recent work and certainly others in the medical legal partnership world are really looking at again how do we leverage current resources? Obviously, we'd all like to have them expanded, but you know how can we bring have a lawyer in a clinic half a day a week who can serve as a consultant around particular cases as opposed to embedding them there full time, having them on call as a way to answer questions, uh, you know, thinking about how do you how do you integrate the services, maybe leveraging sh- scarce resources while at the same time, of course, advocating for for more. But it is it is a, it is a challenge. Yes, it is really a challenge. And, you know, one other side of this that I was really thinking about in terms of the interactions that are in a health law class, like the one that I teach um, about doctors and attorneys is the question of advocacy for the patient within the bureaucracies of payer systems like public or private health insurers. And I'm thinking there particularly of this Wickline case where the court held that a doctor had a duty to advocate on behalf of a patient whom he believed needed eight days of hospitalization to get Medi-Cal to pay for that, um, even though they were really only they were only really willing to pay for four days of hospitalization. And that leads me to two questions. One being that um, from the direct problem posed in that case, could there be a role for medical legal partnerships in reducing some of the paperwork burden imposed on doctors by managed care and other utilization review? Or is that just beyond the purview of this area? And secondly, and this is sort of on a broader level, we know that in the medical profession, there are sort of tiers of professionals, paraprofessionals, etc. Um, and I'm wondering if the legal uh, sector, legal profession might eventually need tiers of legal services workers that don't have the full JD, but are specially trained for particular purposes within, say, medical legal partnerships, say, lead paint abatement advocacy or benefits advocacy or other things that would not require the full education of a JD, but that would still have be a big value add in terms of compliance or legal knowledge in those areas. Yeah, I mean, I think to your first question about the kind of the the advocacy role of physicians and and the paperwork question, right, which is how much are we putting on physicians to have to to cope with whether it's insurance advocacy or you know a whole range of 
as we've talked about, uh, you know, social determinants advocacy when we are recognizing those kinds of issues are affecting patient health. Um, and I think, you know, the goal with medical legal partnership is, as I said earlier, to, to not, uh, to not burden physicians with more, but to figure out what can be the role of, of, of lawyers in helping to support the work that they're doing, um, with the goal of being, you know, better patient service and better patient advocate or, um, outcomes. Um, and so there certainly are examples of medical legal partnerships, um, that are doing great Great work around insurance advocacy, uh, and you know, I think I actually just wrote a report um, for the National Association of Community Health Centers on the role of medical legal partnerships in outreach and enrollment. So I think you know, as our insurance system <laughs> has gotten so incredibly complex, and and certainly under the ACA with people trying to to manage uh, the exchanges and figuring out you know Medicaid rules and all the things that 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 patients are dealing with, but certainly providers are dealing with as well. Medical legal partnership is playing a really important role in in helping providers to manage those those issues um, and and again part of that is taking on specific cases but a lot of it is also education and just helping people helping providers to to know what they can do um, in a more efficient or effective way when they are trying to advocate for their patients to your second question I I think it's a again a good one in terms of how we think about legal professionals and and as it's been interesting to watch as the healthcare system has really begun to embrace sort of the multiple roles of, of um, nurse care managers and social workers and uh, you know community health workers and others that are that are seen as part of the core team of, of address or providing health care I think it's it, it's a really important thing for the legal profession to think about we certainly have uh, paralegals that are part of medical legal partnerships who you know are able to play a, a critical role but I would also say that I think a big part of this is about uh, training and educating people around rules Rules and regulations that affect patients without turning them obviously into lawyers, but helping them to become better advocates, you know, whether it's people that are community organizers or, um, you know, others that are working with community systems uh, of care that are really failing patients. You know, lawyers can play a really key role in maintaining a knowledge of, of rules and regulations that are, that are critical to, to being able to do that well and, and really um, supporting and training other people to be able to do that. And I think that's, that's I hope, a part Part of sort of the the new horizon for medical legal partnership is really thinking about that kind of community community engagement, but also uh, broadening the, the 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 number of people that can serve that in those in those important advocacy roles. And that was the week in health law. The big thank you to Professor Tobin Tyler. You can find her on Twitter at Liz Tobin Tyler. That's L I Z T O B I N T Y L E R. Thanks so much for joining us, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. It's been enjoyable. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas. Terry on Twitter and Frank. I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>